Welcome to Changing Light Bulbs, the podcast that's dedicated to innovation and transformation in all of their forms. I am your host, Greg R. McGovern, and today my journey continues with our guest, Karen. Karen is a former politician and current executive at an organization in Toronto. Our conversation began with the question if governments can change. And what I was impressed with was was this concept of hope, hope for a better future that governments can not only change, but change for the positive. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Please take a listen. Uh, Hey, Karen, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The first question I ask all of my guests is something artistic, cultural, anything like that, that may have inspired you and and, and made change in your life. Well, there's one. It's a book, actually, that um, I read. And it's one of the few books I I reread because I just love it so much. It's A Man Called Ove by Frederick Bachman. And it's a a story of a man and uh, how he copes with the loss of his wife. And it's a beautiful story and how it unfolds. And uh, it's just so many pieces I could relate to um, as he's telling the story. That, uh, and it's the, the writing is so beautiful that it was a book that stayed with me long after I closed it. And so you've read it again. I have read it again. Multiple times? <laughs> Just twice. <laughs> Just twice. <laughs> but I've dog-eared the pages of the chapters that I love. And it, oh, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. So we're here to talk to you about your kind of previous career a little yes. bit. Uh, so why don't you tell our audience what you did before you're doing this job? Well, uh, n- now um, I run a charity, Variety yeah. of the Children's Charity. Uh, but before that, I was a city councillor for the city of Toronto for 11 years. And what got you into that? It was really one of those timing and opportunity things that happened. I, um, I had said to my husband at the time, I really would like to be involved in politics at some point in my yeah. life. And he said, well, you know, there's no sometime, it's now. We should, you should do it now. We, we didn't have kids. Yeah. We, uh, we both had stable incomes. He said, if you're going to take this opportunity and this risk, you should do it now. Yeah. He said, you're not going to win. <laughs> But you'll build a base, you'll learn what it means to run a campaign, and then if you like it, you can you know, try again next time. And uh, that's how I went into the campaign with, this is an experience of, that uh, I wanted to do, and I'll learn a lot, and I'll learn my community, and I care about my city. And, and uh, as it happens, I, I won. I, I won the, uh, despite the election. Comment. Despite his comments. Despite his comments. And I won significantly uh, so it wasn't a narrow squeaker it was yeah, yeah. a significant win which was uh, for me the first time I had ever um, been in in that kind of position I hadn't run for student council I hadn't been part of student right. government I had studied political science but uh, it was really it was really new for me and uh, quite overwhelming at the beginning yeah I can imagine so what is the biggest change you've, you've obviously come from a private sector now you're moving into the public sector and as an elected official. Yeah. What was that like? Well, actually, I worked I worked for the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. So okay. I was a bureaucrat, and then I moved into the city politics. And, um, you know, I, I had studied government in school, but uh, city politics is quite different than anything you might study in school because there's no parties, there's no formal structure. It's right. a council that needs to build consensus over each item. Right. And the mayor provides the the moral leadership, or the leadership rather, and then the council takes each, each issue and uh, makes a, a determination. And so it's, it's uh, the dynamics shift constantly uh, at city council, and the kind of politics at play is, it is very local, it's very consensus building, it's, you rely on uh, relationships to yeah. get things done, and it's, it was very, it was unlike any environment I'd ever worked in. 
And was it the relationships that were most challenging, or was it just the culture? Or It was a combination of culture and relationships, uh, yeah. primarily because when I was there and David Miller was the mayor, he uh, had supported and campaigned for the woman I was running against. So when I won the seat, uh, we, we weren't natural allies, and uh, there was always tension in our relationship because we had different views of the world. We saw the world differently, and uh, we both we both brought different things to the table, uh, but he was the mayor, and he <laughs> and he had a yeah. different view of how things should go. So, but it was it was a fascinating time, and it's a fascinating level of government to 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 understand that uh, you you can build consensus with opposing views and actually get an outcome that meets the majority of people's needs. Was there any like uh, big wow moment when that early transition happened that said, "Wow, this is how I have to act now, or how I have to be"? No, I, I, I think it was an evolution, and right. it was because I had I had come in with no experience. There were a few members of council that I did look to yeah. and I learned from, and they weren't always the people that I agreed with, but I saw how they got things done, and I admired how they did it. Yeah. And so they, I had mentors along council of all political stripes. And then you eventually went from just councillor to ultimately a position of somewhat of significant power. Yeah, I became chair of the TTC under the Ford administration. So what was that like? That was interesting too, because it was a very tumultuous time in our city's history for transit. Uh, Ford had got elected on a, uh, a mandate to build subways, although we had a funded plan for light rail. And the TTC was stuck in the middle of what the plan was versus what the mayor wanted. And uh, during that time, we had to negotiate a resolution um, there was also some casualties and that the general manager of the TTC was was fired because right. that's what Ford wanted. I, that's not what I wanted, but right. I got caught up in the politics. And so that we had a, a four-year period where the leadership of the TTC changed. Uh, I continued to be chair. We negotiated a new transit plan. The mayor opposed the bulk of it, but we still got it through council. And... Um, but it was a very difficult, bruising time in municipal government and for me personally. What, any big takeaways from that? You'd do something different? You know, in hindsight, uh, would I have done something different? I think that when you're in the moment, you do what you have to do uh, with your eye on the long game. But there was a point at which uh, I was, I knew I didn't have the, the, the balance of power on the TTC commission. I knew that even though I was the chair, I didn't have the votes. But it was a moment in time where I also knew that if I didn't do something, that the city was going to make a very, very bad decision that was going to cost a lot of money and um, be very detrimental to not just the city and the financial aspect of it, but to transit planning as a whole. And I had that moment where I looked in the mirror and I thought, I'm in a position where I, should, I can do something. And I don't report to Rob Ford. I report to the people who elected me. And I need to do everything I can to make sure the right decision is made um, as I believe it to be. And I, I felt that the, the wrong decision was being made and I felt the right decision needed to be, needed to be made. And so I, I went directly to council to get a mandate from council and I was successful in getting that mandate. So it helped change the direction of what I believed was gonna be a very, very bad decision. That takes a heck of a lot of leadership and conviction. And it was very scary. Yeah. It was very scary. And it was one of those moments where I, I, I built relationships, but they were, everybody knew it was for the purpose of the issue. Um, but it was a very lonely place 
because there's not there's no one that you can really confide in around what's going on because nobody can really understand it in the same way. Yeah. And it was it was a very, very difficult time because the mayor had a strong ground force of people who were very vocal and it became very personal. And how do you get through that? I did have good supports around me and I also had um, people that it's just said, listen, you know, just don't read your Twitter. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> Delete it from your phone. We'll, we'll manage your Twitter account for you. Just don't look at it. Yeah. And it was, you know, there is that period where you go through almost, um, you isolate yourself from the outside because right. you know that you need to get this done. And if you listen to too many conflicting voices, it might knock you off your path. So you just have to stay really super focused. Um, and then then you are able to solve the problem and then you come out of it again. And it, it, it's, it, it, um, it was a very interesting journey for sure. And anything that you would take away from that that you apply now to, the, to your existing world? The one thing I did learn is that, uh, in, particularly in politics, is that once you're in a big fight like that, even if you get the outcome you want, everyone's lost. And um, you know, even being the politician <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, Toronto yeah. Life said I was one of the 50 most influential people in the city at the time because I had led this transit debate and got the outcome that was deemed to be right for the city. It was still very bruising. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't have that fight without fighting back. And, you know, in the fighting back process, things can get really messy. And uh, you, you don't come out the same person you went in. <laughs> and uh, I think that, um, you know, on, on one level, I thought that being able to lead that transit debate and be successful at council and get the votes and get the plan, that that would have positioned me better when I ran for mayor. But it really didn't yeah. because uh, people saw it as a one issue where I was successful, but I was still part of the noise and the fighting and all of the things that people didn't want. Would you do it differently again? And if so, what? Again, it's so hard yeah. because you're, you're dealing with the dynamics at the time. The only way to get it done was to fight. And yeah. so um, I, I think that when I, when I think about politics and how politics could be better conducted to accomplish yeah, yeah. more for more people, it's not through the fighting. It is through the consensus building. But you can't build consensus by yourself. And yeah. that's the, that was the challenge of the time. Any joy that came out of it through that process? Yeah, there is. <laughs> there is. And when I drive, because I live at Young and Eglinton, yeah, and yeah. I, the, I see the construction every day, and I, I, I do take a bit of joy about the fact I was part of that. That's fantastic. Beyond the transit thing we've kind of talked about, is there anything else that you are really proud of that you just are so happy you did? Well, the, the other projects that gave me so much joy were more community-based. And that we were, you know, we were able to engage the community in a lot of projects that helped make the community a better place to live where people felt more connected to it. And so there was a lot of park rejuvenation that took place. There was mur art murals that got put up. There was one area of the, of the community that was constantly graffitied. That, and we engaged a number of students to do art, to do paintings that we then uh, displayed on the panels, on the retaining walls yeah, that yeah, otherwise yeah. had the graffiti. And so it was a nice way of reclaiming our space and making yeah. it the community space again. So when we think about government and change, I guess the first simplest question, do governments actually need to change? It is an interesting question in light of the last election yeah. where we saw such a fractured result across the country. Yeah. And you know, I think every organization benefits from change, yeah. whether it's the smallest shop or the largest government. I, I think 
the challenge for government is to figure out in essence what it needs in order to protect the public good while at the same time being nimble enough to respond to the issues that are happening at the present day because the the, the issues that governments are dealing with they're cross border they're cross they're, they're 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 not just national issues or local issues they yeah, yeah. they cross borders and governments have at all levels have less and less influence to really set the course from a policy perspective. They can affect it on the margins, but the the big debates around you know free trade integration, um, immigration, currency, a lot of that is really out of their control because we're such a global, globally connected um, world right now. And so the areas where government has influence, although it feels like government is everywhere, yeah. the areas that government has influence is not that great anymore. How do you change that, I guess? How, how can governments make more influence? Uh, personally, I think governments can make more influence realizing that what they do is influence. That regulation can go so far, and we need regulation in certain aspects to make sure we get the change we want. But the reality is, if we're going to make the kind of social change that we want to see on climate change, for example, yeah. that's not a government program. That is a cultural shift. And that can't get done unless you have buy-in from corporations, from consumers, from voters, from neighbors, from other levels of government. And you can't mandate change. You need to facilitate change. And the role of the government is, I believe, to be more successful, less one of mandator than one more of, of facilitator. A facilitator. Are they even able to facilitate that, I guess, at the present time? or? Well, it, it's... It, it, so it's interesting in that um, a minority government will force, in, in the case of this current election context, yeah. a minority government forces more conciliatory approach by virtue of the fact that you can't just mandate. Right. You, you need buy-in of other parties, other ideas, other points of view. And, um, but it means that everyone has to climb down a little bit and say that they actually do want to work with each other to get stuff done. And saying that you want to work with someone who you might not ideologically agree with all the time, if you can agree on what you're working towards, then it, 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 it takes a maturity and it, it takes a level of commitment to the public good that isn't always evident when you fight a campaign that's dirty and personal and devoid of any issue. And do you think uh, society as the citizens are there yet or are they still entrenched in their positions? I think fundamentally people vote in their self-interest. And that will never change. But for political leaders who are able to identify a self-interest that, that crosses boundaries and crosses borders and crosses provinces, yeah, yeah. I think that will really be uh, the successful leader that will take us where we need to go. And is in, does it start at the top, you think? I, 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 I do, I, yeah. because, you know, ultimately, I mean, there's, there's, you know, points of view that bottom up, top down, but, you know, the bottom, the grassroots elects the leader, right. and so, and the leader then leads, yeah. and it has to be a combination of understanding where you want to go, first of all, being able to say, this is where we want to go, yeah, yeah. and then getting that buy-in from people to say, yeah, we want to go there with you. In your experience, how difficult is buy-in to get? If you know the direction you got to go in, what do you got to do? My own personal small situation with the transit system, yeah, yeah. Um, I was able to get buy-in once I stood up and said, this is where we need to go. Uh, and I got the majority. I didn't get two-thirds, but I got enough that we actually had a solid majority to say, this is what we need to do as a city. And because I had enough support 
and their communities were behind it, it was able to hold. Is it also, um, and you're lucky in the sense that you were able to deal with directly with the people yeah. uh, that you had to, uh, at council to deal with. Yeah. When it's broader for society, is it is it is it that kind of FDR fireside chat that you're slowly convincing everybody, or yes, is it? I do. I think yeah. because no matter where we live, whether in Newfoundland or BC, we want the same things for our families and our kids and our community. Right? We want people to have. Um, comfort in us and a stable income and to be able to provide for their families and to have a dream about whether it's a holiday or a better future or a retirement and Canadians aren't that different we have different experiences I mean the experience of living in Newfoundland is a different experience than living in downtown Toronto but we still want the same things <laughs> and so you know I, I don't imagine that there's any Canadian that doesn't want a, a cleaner more um, sustainable environment I, I don't I don't I believe that. We all want that. Um, and so can we talk about what we want, and then we talk about how we get there, right. as opposed to saying, because we've always talked about the solution before we've actually got buy-in to the direction. And then people, you know, they get all worked up. No, I don't want carbon tax. I don't want gas tax. I don't want this tax. I don't want that tax. I'm like, okay, but you, but we say we want the sustainable environment that is right. contributing to um, a sustainable future for our kids. So can we just stay at that level? And then, and then we can agree on how we get there. So I had a, a very short stint within government, um, and I always thought the interesting dynamic for me was the dynamic between the politician and the bureaucrat. Can you talk about um, how you can make change as a politician internal to the structure within the organization? Certainly. My, so I have been a bureaucrat and I've been a politician, and I know the tension exists because as a bureaucrat, <coughs> you need to fully understand your file in order to make appropriate recommendations to the political directors that are, or the political actors that are going to move the file forward. And the politicians are responding to what they, their community is telling them. And sometimes the, the information that we get is very, is complicated and it needs, it is complicated because honestly, if these issues were easy to solve, we would have solved them. The reason they're not solved is because they're complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so part of that challenge is how do you take a complicated issue and make it not dumb it down for the politician, because the politicians aren't dumb, but they need to be able to make that clear, concise message to the public that isn't making light of the issue, but it's also helping the public understand. Because the public doesn't have the same bandwidth as the bureaucrats to understand the issue to the depth that it probably needs to be understood. But you can't, you can't expect busy people with busy lives and their own conflicting priorities to take a back page to understanding what a government mandate is or should look like or how to solve a problem. Yeah. So, you know, I think politicians form a very valuable role in taking complex issues and communicating them to the public. And I think there, are, there is room for change is that, you know, sometimes we make things way too difficult, you know, and we burden ourselves with process and all kinds of things that, you know, we say we do in order to have transparency in government but it doesn't actually help make decisions and it actually doesn't help towards transparency. <laughs> and so I think that there are lots of things that we do to ourselves that make our job harder than it needs to be, both at the political and at the bureaucratic level. And I, and I do think it, 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 it does begin at the political level to be crystal clear about what, where, where are we going? How do we get there? How do we enable the bureaucrats to give us the information that is helpful? And then how do we have those discussions with the public? And you know, I, I think that we're at a point of our history right now where 
the benefits of social media is that we're more connected than we've ever been. Yes. The downfall of social media is that you can't have a fireside chat in 140 characters. And so how do we create that new space? And I think that's the biggest challenge is that back in FDR's day, he could have that conver almost a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an mm -hmm. individual. Um, and now you have all these multiple actors coming in and, and doing that. It, it makes it incredibly challenging. So is that the biggest challenge that governments face in that sense of, is it messaging that's the biggest challenge, you think? I think messaging is, is, is a part of it. I yeah. think um, leadership is another part of it. I don't, I don't, I don't think that, I think we've had good leaders. I, I think that um, we haven't been able to show leadership on certain areas. Um, I, I also think that it's, it's hard because there is less money. And it, we, will, we run deficits and we've accepted them as part of our reality, but it also constrains us in our ability to think big about big projects. And so in light of the fiscal constraints that exist for every level of government, coupled with the fact that it is getting harder and harder to build a, a consensus around um, a message or communicating a vision on, on certain items that m might be national priorities, and, and then people with busy lives, it, um, it, it, it just creates a challenge. So what do you think the path forward is? Again, I, I think that um, moving forward will require a rethink of how government does work with partners. And I think we've seen some successes where par uh, governments have reached out and worked in partnership with the private sector and not-for-profits to deliver programs. And, um, I, you know, and I, do, I do think the government's going to have to start getting out of certain things yeah. that they d don't do best. Um, and there's things that they do, do very well. And so focus on the things that they do well, get out of the things that they don't. Where do you think government's going in the next 5, 10, 20 years? I think, you know, really, um, I think the imperative will be sustainability, both financially and environmentally. And that will be, that will really constrain us in our debates. I mean, everything else really, and eh, like what, what do we, you know, really what's left to talk about? Like yeah. we, we agree on free trade, we agree on health care, we agree on a... Uh, social benefits, pension. There's there's so many areas that no matter what your political stripe, you agree on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Even immigration. We actually have a, a high level of consensus on immigration. So the areas where we, we disagree are, um, you know, they're really around how are we going to be sustainable. The, the big policy debates around GST or free trade or yeah, some yeah. of the other, Meech Lake, some of the other big issues that defined our political discourse over the last 30 years, I don't see us having in the next 20. Um, but I, I do think the issue of sustainability will be an issue that we will have to grapple with for the next next 10, right, 15 right. years. Do you think we're ready to grapple with it as, as citizens? It's, I, I, it's interesting. Um, and, so, and the answer is I don't know, yeah, to be I, candid. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Um, but you know, certainly as I'm in a new phase of my life, reconciling, my kids are going to school, yeah. I've got 15 years left in my career, maybe more. Um, planning for retirement. You know, those are, I'm in a different space around how I view issues than I was when I was 30. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, together we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, but it will be, you know, if you ask a millennial to say, you know, are you guys willing to have some austerity? They'll say, well, you know, why, why, why me? Why not you? Yeah, right? Yeah, You've yeah. benefited from all this, you know, these yeah. programs and all these entitlements. And, you know, why am I the one that has to pay your bills? Yeah. And I'm like, well, because I'm the one that built your roads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, but once you go down that discussion, then you're already positioning people. And so it's really how do you engage the, um, 
the generations into understanding that everybody has made and will make a contribution. What is our next contribution going to be? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So many years ago, I worked in a company that we competed against Microsoft. We were able to create consensus and create um, a single voice within our company, even though we were a very diverse and very large company, because we were competing against Microsoft. And so we had this, quote, enemy that we were focused on. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we need something like that? Do you think that society needs a, an issue that's going to bring us all together? Or can we find it in some other way? No, I, I think you'll always need a rallying cry. And, you know, and if, you know, I, I, and I don't, and again, using the sustainability, that yeah. the, the, the enemy isn't that we're going to run out of money or we're going to, you know, all be subject to scorched earth, yeah, right? Because yeah, yeah. the sun's going to come and, you know, burn yeah. a hole through the ozone and set us all yeah. aflame. Like, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that needs to be our thought process. I do think that there needs to be a rallying cry around, you know, if, if we don't start addressing some of these issues, the world is going to look pretty different for my, my kids' kids. Absolutely. And there's no question about it. Like, already housing prices are high, yeah. education is high, uh, we don't have enough money to make investments in infrastructure that we want to make. Uh, we have, you know, we don't have a real sense of how we are going to be sustainable, um, but, but we know that that's our imperative, that we need to start thinking that way. And so having those conversations, and the void will get filled in different ways, and people aren't, it'll be quite surprising when you start having the right conversations how the void does get filled by citizens, by corporations, by not-for-profits, and then by government. Um, and, uh, but it's just, it, how, how, how do you have that rallying cry across a nation, or even across a province, or across a city, when um, people come at it from different ways? Yeah, with such diverse views, it's interesting how we each define what our rallying cry is. I, I, I wonder, you know, are politicians the ones who are kind of defining that rallying cry? Yeah, yeah I mean, all too often, particularly in federal politics and even in provincial politics, um, politicians think the enemy is the other party. But the other party is not the enemy. They just have a different idea. The, the bigger enemy is what is the issue facing us and whether it's social media, whether it's environmental sustainability, financial s sustainability, that's the rallying cry. And when you start to make the opposing idea or the opposing voice your enemy, then you do a great disservice to solving the problem. That's very cool. All right, last question because yeah. we're running out of time here. Okay. But when I say the word transformation to you relative to governments, what do you think? <laughs> I, 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 I think that it, governments are like any organization that they can, they can transform and they will and they have been. Yeah. And uh, there is room for more transformation, um, but it needs to come from the political level. Yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time and, and your thoughts here. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do it another time when you get your next career. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this concludes our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. For more information on the work that I do around innovation and transformation, please check out my website at www.changinglightbulbs.com. And for more information on our amazing sponsor, Delta Oversee, the software company that's dedicated to enabling positive, sustainable change and transformations for organizations, please check out their website at www.deltaoversee.info or give them a shout at 647-513-3582. Don't forget to mention that you heard about us on this podcast. Thanks again, and never forget to continually adapt and transform for tomorrow's reality. <laughs>